right, welcome. Welcome to the next space. Blog Talk Radio's news, weekly news program talking about manned space flight news and happening this past week. We welcome you. Uh, I'm running as host tonight. Our uh, <clears throat> my cohort is sitting here kind of walking me through the engineer duties. So welcome. And uh, don't laugh at me too bad tonight. Here, we'll see how many pull-ups I can avoid. Um, in the meantime, well, I want to bring you up to date. Um, for those of you that are listening, come check out. Call us in at uh, 714-242-5145. That's 714-242-5145. We're here to talk about manned space flight tonight, news, commentary, uh, what we can do to get there, what we can do to, to keep the naysayers off our backs. So uh, call in, join. We'll see what we have to share with everybody else. Let's talk about the calendar for a few minutes, Wad Media. Um, is uh, out and about this week. We just finished Comic and Media Expo, Mesa, Arizona. A lot of stuff going on, a lot of authors, a lot of cosplay out there. I remember when I was out there the other day. There's just a lot of stuff going on. If you see uh, 21st, Castus does their book discussion. Check out the Castus webpage uh, to find out information on that. We've got the Hey Girl Show this uh, Wednesday night at 8 p.m., They'll be talking about the uh, latest things. What do we got on tap tonight? Treasure fruit. Not passion fruit. Treasure fruit. Yes. Okay, so that's treasure fruit. They'll be going over this thing. No um, cover charge, David. And no book cover charge. Now, where's that, where that going to be held? Ice House. Ice House. That's in South Scottsdale, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. Thomas Road and where? Oh, okay. So that's the old Tower Plaza used to be the old Thomas Mall many, many, many years ago for those of you over the dinosaurs like me. <laughs> it's in the back of the ice cream. It's uh, in the back of the mall. So you have to actually go around behind the mall to get to the ice house. Um, also, coming up this Friday, the 24th, 25th, and 26th, Wild Western Festival in Glendale. Zombie Walk number six is coming up on Saturday. Next week, uh, Wide Media will be at both of those. Come on out, check us out. Uh, take a take a chance of talking with uh, our main editor, managing editor Patty. So she'll be out there most of the time. Also, check out Kamikaze Expo in LA on the 31st of the month, Halloween night. Oh my God. What can you find on Halloween night at the Kamikaze Expo? Tuscon fires up on the 31st as well. And FearCon here in Phoenix fires up on uh, the 1st of November. We will be out at FearCon. Come on out, check us out, see what's happening as well. Now, uh, also coming into November, Tuscon Comic Con, Tucson Comic Con fires up on. November 8th, Scottsdale Romance Festival fires up on June. Oh, we will be. Wide Media will be out there. Crazy Puppy. Both. Okay. Check out the staff giving a solid showing. And we'll see you at those events. So be sure to check us out. Come on out and see what's happening. 
So on to the news for this week. It's been an it's been an interesting week. Things started out really kind of slow. Doing some research, and checking on a few things. First thing I ran into was a video about women in space. Now Sally Ride was the first American woman in space, and after earning her PhD in physics from Stanford, uh, she was recruited to. Um, to develop the space shuttle's robot arm, and then she eventually spent over 300 hours in space. So here, her story and many other space pioneers and makers women in space. You know, one of the things that... Yeah, she's got a book down. Take them off. Food. Never take a bath. Food when you ain't done with it. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I didn't pull the fork out yet, so it's not done. See? There you go. There you go. All right. All right. That's it. And, you know, one of the things about uh, our society is that we don't give women the recognition all the times we need to, uh, particularly uh, when it comes to the hard work that they own or whether it's working in the office. Uh, there's, there's a whole different attitude that women bring to every task that they do in this man's world that it still is, despite the things that we've done to approve things. And i got to tell you what, work is a whole lot better when there's women around. Not just because of the eye candy, but i got to tell you, the, the interplay that happens, we are a species of both male and female, and wherever we are, we need to have both of us present, men and women, and eventually kitties. Yeah, I don't know. That we are. We're definitely social creatures. Our next item <clears throat> comes to us uh, from space.com. And Mercury is in the news. Uh, they have actually um, taken the first ever photos of water ice near Mercury's North Pole. Now, the images taken by NASA's Messenger spacecraft suggest that ice looking within Mercury's Polar craters were delivered recently. Of course, anytime NASA or any scientist says recently, that could be anywhere in the last couple of million years. It was a geologically recently thing. Keep that in mind as you're looking through. Anyway, uh, and these are made and topped up by processes that continue today. Now, this is similar to what we've talked about in brief a few times about the water ice that they suspect may also be in the moon's deep, dark craters particularly at the, the polar regions. So definitely a great read. Check out the photos. They've got some a couple of interesting things to, to work with there. Um, the uh, space station in the news, we're looking at uh, new things that have arrived and coming up on board. One of the things that they're talking about now is a mini MRI to check the bone health of the astronauts as they work Astronauts may soon have a portable MRI machine to keep an eye on the muscles and bones during a spell on the International Space Station. Custom-built, uh, lightweight MRI should be ready to fly by 2016. Now, can you imagine that? being able to just go to the other end of the room and get your MRI taken and see how bad your bones are getting rid of <laughs> Almost a depressing kind of thing, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. But hopefully we can move forward and... It'll help improve what we know about the uh, issues.
issues that we face with um, <clears throat> okay, here we go, senior moment. Challenges that we face in both low to zero gravity. A lot of things. Lot of things. Moving on, okay, the ISS is getting a boatload of stuff coming up soon. It's easy to forget that it's more than just a place for astronauts to hang out and take every selfie. Well, they've got this great, unique microgravity environment. We've already seen they've got spiders up there. They've had um, the plants. They've been doing all sorts of research with different critters and things like this. Um, and they've got all these experiments that they're doing up there that involve everything from human tissue growth to protein crystal formation. Except there's this one little detail that we kind of get we forget about, and that is that oftentimes, six months or a year before those samples can come back to Earth. And that's usually based on when the next ship that's coming back to Earth that can carry experiments. Now, we're not talking about the progress ships that take the trash out and burn up in the atmosphere. We're talking about the either the Soyuz that bring back the astronauts or the Dragon, which has been bringing back experiments and things like that. Now, one of the things that uh, this company, what is it? What are they called? I forget the name of them. Okay. The Popular Science article talks about a company that is designing a um, shipping little ship. I mean, this is it's a small ship to be designed to carry these very experiments back into Earth. Now, it's a lifting body unit, and they would actually ship up several of them so that they could have them on board. And then when critical experiments or time-sensitive return stuff is ready to come back, they can pop it into this little delivery capsule, send it back to Earth, and it would fly its way back to a landing on Earth and delivery to those scientists who are needing their samples back in much less than the six months or a year cycle. We wish them well. I hope uh, all goes well. And I can see, I'll tell you what, you know, this is one of those things that just kind of gets my mind burnt because if they build it, a itty-bitty little capsule for scientists or science experiments and critters come back to Earth, and they can actually return these. These theoretically can return at the same time the shuttle used to be able to return, about a six-hour time frame. If that's true, these things could become new light bulbs for the ISS. Now, see, that would be very, very cool, because if these could be scaled up just big enough to hold one person, they could slide in. It doesn't even have to be pressurized for very long, because in six hours, you're going to be landing. And it's, it's autopilot. I can, I can see people just riding these for the fun of it, you know, paying a couple of million dollars to go up and have a life boat ride to Earth. Talk about, although, i got to wonder, you wouldn't be able to put just a single barf bag up. You'd have to have a bark tube that you'd wear on your face. <laughs> but I tell you, it, it would be an awesome way. They're far more compact. Uh, the amount of fuel that they would use to just get into position and, and dive into the atmosphere would probably be a whale of a lot less than what the Dragon of the Soyuz is to a light bulb. You could stick these things all over the station. Yeah. So different, different, different strokes for different folks. All right, thinking about uh, doing stuff in space. The next thing we got is 
Congress is asking for advice. Okay, now, first of all, this is just plain wrong. Congress doesn't ask our advice. And when was the last time that we gave it to them that they actually took it? <laughs> Congressmen, stinking politicians. Um, although, this particular one has some interesting things to it. The White House Office of Science and Technology is planning ahead, and what they want to do is they want you to email ideas for how the administration, privacy, science, blah, 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 can develop massless space exploration robust civilization beyond Earth. Now, the Deputy Director of Technology, Mr. Tom Khalil, says that in one of his meetings with NASA, senior officials of space agency observed, right now, the mass we use in space all comes from the Earth. We need to break that paradigm so that the mass we use in space comes from space. Many of you have heard me talk before that there is no economy in cost to lift the materials, the equipment, and the personnel to space in order to return stuff back to Earth is ridiculously horrendous. That kind of capital expense is untenable in any kind of a business plan. And anybody who thinks they can make that work has probably got a solar flare up their backside. <laughs> Something is frying where it shouldn't be. So let's, let's just keep an eye on it. But it's going to be interesting to see what kind of comments and what kind of news stories. So we'll be watching the developments on this as things um, come along in the, in the near future. Hopefully, they'll start feeding us some of these how the oddball are we? You know, the, the, the news media loves to see the oddball stuff that's crossed. Uh, on the international front, uh, China has been in the news uh, this week. They have made uh, another announcement. Uh, space travelers from around the globe got a first-hand sense of China's blossoming plans to explore Earth in orbit at this time. At the 27th Planetary Congress, of the Association of Space Explorers held in Beijing last month. The industry leaders extended an open invitation for other nations to take part in China's emerging space program. Now, this is actually, uh, I did an essay some, some time back. I don't remember where I put it. But I talked about how the United States, being one of the uh, leading countries to actually get into space, we pretty much um, oh, I like that, Cersei. So Congress asked for an idea they can filibuster. Yep, that's about the size of it. China is following very much and and also to a certain degree in the same steps that Russia has followed, Soviet Union before, and now that India, as well as other spacefaring nations, are following. And basically, you have this big push, this this huge outpouring of national pride at getting men in space, whether it have been on the Soyuz, the space shuttle, or Apollo, uh, and the Apollo Skylab programs. All these things are a point of national pride, but there's going to come a time, as we are finding in this country, and also uh, Russia found there for a few years, really tough time economically to keep their space program going. Now, China, I think, is beginning to feel the heat that I was talking about in that essay. The points that I made are that, you know, national pride is a wonderful thing. When we look at history, 
and we look at the way the Great Migrations happened, such as the Pilgrims uh, following Columbus's exploration. The move west with the American pioneers who went from the colonies out to colonize the Midwest and then later on the Western states. And then also uh, Britain's foray into the Australian continent where they sent their, started out with Botany Bay and that whole <clears throat> prison scenario thing that ended up becoming a migration. Only the beginning of these is government done. And even then, the government can only do exploration. When it comes to getting economics long-term, economic progress or even developmental progress, exploration is fine. But governments will increasingly run up against this economic wall that their people will only support it for so long. In the United States, the, the funny thing was that if you go back and you look at the historical news reports, you get to Apollo, what, 16, 14, 13, 14 after the, the landings, got going and we had the rover and we had everybody going up there and collecting more moon rocks and coming back. By Apollo 15, the news wasn't even covering it much anymore. People were tired of it. They weren't tuning into the news to watch what was going on with Apollo. And that was barely four to six years after the Apollo landing itself drive to get to the moon. Now, China's been at this for just barely 10 years. They're hitting the point now where they're opening their doors to the rest of the world to join in their space station project. Well, what did we do when Space Station Freedom started having trouble? The United States started inviting other nations to join in, and it became the International Space Station. And then it kept getting chopped and chopped and chopped. I will make a prognostication here that China, no matter how big their lofty goals are, is going to suffer many of the same serious challenges when trying to cooperate with other nations. That's, you know, politics aside, not only internal politics, but international politics, creates such a mess on these kinds of projects that unless they can bring the, the, the wisdom of Confucius and all the other philosophical greats of the East into play and plan for the political, the economic, and just the sheer time frame challenges, China's space station is going to suffer many of the same setbacks that the International Space Station suffered, as well as the long, drawn-out construction process, things like this. You have to remember to check history and learn from the lessons that history offers us, and sadly, too often, it doesn't happen. But by the way, did I put that link out there? Yes, I did. Okay, so we're good to go. All right. Now, still talking about China, we have another link. Uh, the Space Review has an article that talks about the role of international corporate cooperation with the Chinese space station. This year's IAC, held two weeks ago in Toronto, was interestingly marked by the absence of not only the Chinese, but Russian officials. Now, they did have delegates from both countries mostly from industry and academia, were able to attend. And the Chinese Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation had a large exhibit as well, showing off models of the Long March rocket, the Chang-3 lander, and the U-2 rover. And one presentation in particular shed some light on China's long-term space-like plans, which center 
on the space station we were just talking about a few moments ago. Now, they're hoping to get that station up in the 2020s. I recall back in the heyday of the Space Station Freedom Days, they were hoping to get it up uh, 10 to 12 years before the space station actually started getting built. So it'll be interesting to see if they can actually accelerate and achieve the publicized. What hasn't is the role of the international cooperation and what they've done now is, again, they've made the formal announcement that they're hoping to work with people from all over the world to make that whole thing happen. Uh, so, you know, a lot of, lot of interesting things happening uh, these days, particularly with China, as China begins to spread its wings and do what it can do. Now, uh, an infographic that has was provided also that I have to spot. Uh, interesting reading uh, poses and, and describes how that Tiangong station will actually work and function for the Chinese program. Moving on to private space, or what we've been calling new space these days. Um, we've got uh, a few interesting things. And a comment here, we got space has a way of throwing schedules way off. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, Welcome. We have another guest signing on. Welcome to the show. Hope you enjoy the show. We're talking about private space. This is the next space show with Alan Joe. Joe's being uh, kind of quiet over there. Uh, had a rough day at the Comic Media Expo last couple three days. Yeah, had a great show over there though. Space today. Um, NASA and SpaceX are getting kind of chummy. Um, they're now sharing um, data on the supersonic uh, data that they've been getting from the Dragons coming back. And so forth. Innovative partnership, giving the, the giving NASA an early look at what it would take to land multi-ton habitats and supply caches on Mars for human explorers, while providing sophisticated infrared imagery to help the satellite space company develop a reusable launch vehicle. Okay, here we go. Definitely uh, kind of cool kind of thing. I mean, especially since in the news we've been watching and following. Uh, all the stuff with your Nevada kicking in, the contracts stopping and that starting. You know, we know how government loves to change the <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Over on the next big future, uh, they shared us an article talking about the economics of reusable rockets. They talk about that the primary cost drivers for refurbishment and mission op operation costs. Refurbishment costs after each launch need to be kept below about 3% of the vehicle cost, but definitely at 6% or less for significant cost savings. Well, as I recall, I think some of the numbers that SpaceX has been touting are coming in within those, those ranges. The flight rate, production rates have to be high, and this is, we're going to talk about this moment, the 1954 airline industry was moving 5 million tons, was moving 5 million tons, miles, not even sure about that, 1954 airline industry was moving 5 million tons, miles, per year at about $80 a ton, mile. Okay, now there's a mouthful trying to say that fast, three times. The O3 airline industry was moving 5 billion ton, miles. Per year at about twenty dollars 
per ton mine. So while they're curious about the numbers, when you think about these numbers and what the airline industry is doing compared to what it did when it started up, again, history has lessons to teach us. We have to remember that it's going to be in any business when you want to get, yeah, you can, you can, uh, <laughs> you can rape your customers and get high, high profit on a low volume, and you can end up losing your customers and have no longevity. You know, I mean, just take a look at, take a look at government. If that isn't the most high margin business I've ever seen. <laughs> so, but we know, and I think everybody agrees in the industry that. This high volume, this huge moving volume that they need to move is the key. The question is, how do we get there? And the article talks about some of these economics, some of the things that everybody's trying to work towards to get to that point. And of course, speaking of changes in the industry, uh, many of you may have actually seen this. This was, uh, this was on Facebook quite a bit this week. Um, <clears throat> ULA is now planning a new rocket, restructuring to cut launch costs in half. Now, they're trying to develop a whole new rocket system and will be restructuring the processes and workforce to slash, loss, slash launch costs in half amid smaller military budgets and competition. Oh, so now we're going to say this competition is SpaceX. Okay, somebody's going to finally let that camera off. The result will be a smaller ULA in the near term, but one able to grow again, like they're not growing, and win new kinds of business in the long run. The Tony Bruno, new CEO of the Centennial-based rocket maker, his first interview since being appointed August 12th. So we got a new guy on the, on the, in this hot seat, and hopefully he's going to be making some big changes. All right. We've got a report that says that all this stuff leading up to this is going to give us something cool. And the whole the title of the article is, I thought it was pretty good, Pack Your Space Boats People Will Vacation to the Moon by 2024. Okay, I'm game. And actually, in some of the essays that I've put together and some that I've read uh, and articles and things that I've seen, this, that. This actually, I think, could actually happen. How could travel change in 10 years? Skyscanner, UK-based travel search engine, thinks it has some answers, and it's spectacular. If the future of travel 2024 is correct, suborbital London to Sydney flight will take two hours. Check out some of the other things they've got and some of the ideas that they're talking about that things could be changing very rapidly. And, of course, here's the thing. I remember when the Concorde, the great fanfare, launched with flights from the U.S. to Europe and back, and how expensive it ended up getting, thousands and thousands of dollars for one trip. And while the service was great, you got what you paid for, I'll tell you what. But the same thing is going to be true for the first few of these kinds of trips as they do the uh, two-hour trips. Okay, yeah, that was a travel thing. That was a lot. Well, I tell you what, this is tough trying to keep up as, as we move forward. What? Possible title for a Douglas Adams book? 
I'm not familiar with Douglas Adams, but the oh. title, yeah. Okay. So let's Okay. I did I did actually saw the movie. Actually there was a show, yeah. Very very intriguing stuff. Oh yeah. They discovered a lot of British and then Britishers, I'll tell you something. Yeah. All right. Hang on to your hats. Here's another one. Final powered test beckoned for Spaceship Two. Late switch to a new rocket fuel earlier this year and slowed uh, Virgin Galactic's bid to establish their first suborbital space line service, but their plans haven't stalled, nor have they been standing still. If you show progress with engine tests and, and ship construction, their uh, efforts partly temper the evident frustration expressed by many gathered to mark the 10th anniversary um, of their space flight of Spaceship One back in 04. Ten years is a long time, but given this industry, 20, 30 years before the aircraft industry got going, we are just we're just we're just getting ready to light the candle with Robert Goddard. So you know we we, we need to be just a little bit more patient with some of these companies, um, and so forth. So anyway, okay, in the related tech area tonight, and actually, you know what? We're going to take a break. We've hit the half hour mark. Oh yeah. Uh, as Jersey mentions, look how long it took the automobile industry to come into play. I mean, they started, the automobile industry started way back in the 18, I want to say, 80s. Um, and actually, I think it was before then, because we had little startup guys uh, bringing out their little quadricycles, tiller-operated steam vehicles, and stuff like that. And, and again, it wasn't until, uh, I mean, we had spits and spurts. But it wasn't until I think in the early teens with Henry Ford that, uh, that uh, Henry Ford actually sent us or provided to us that old Model T. And what's that? 1890s was what? The industry began in the 1890s, and then uh, when did when did Ford actually deliver? Was it say 32 million cars? So it took 40 years from the beginning of the industry until right before the Great Depression, 40 years later, and the world had 32 million automobiles on the roads. So, yeah, we've this this word has, has gone relatively quick. But if I'm reading this right, our our milestone is is comparable. When you look at what was going on, you had your first auto company coming up after in, in the late 1890s. So eh, 10 years isn't that, that far out. And look up uh, aviation history. The aviation history. And I'm just curious um, if they showed a similar um, timeline. Okay, no, no, they're talking going all the way back to China. To China, but okay, come on, look forward. Let's, let's go to heavier than air aircraft. There we go. 19th century. This is what we want right here. Uh, okay, the first model aircraft, modern aircraft. Look on that link right there. Was in yeah. So George, the George Cayley, in 1846, was the first modern aircraft. Let's look. 
then steam tonic comes into play. In 1865, Louis Pierre Millard published his book, The Empire of the Air. About that, keep going, keep going, keep going. Uh, Langley, uh, we started seeing a lot more lighters and, and, and some smaller power crafts. Uh, and remember, it was 1910, Orville and Wilbur? 1910, 1913? 1902. Oh. Knew I had a bad time. <laughs> now, and, and of course, good point, Cersei. The model tell you wanted as long as it was black. All right. Yeah, I was looking at another monitor, another monitor facing away from the. You know what? Okay, there we go. Have all you backed up. That would probably help too. Thank you. All right. So flight as an established technology didn't even happen until well past the flight of the Wright brothers and Santos Dumont added ailerons. His final design flew in 1907. So we're looking at from. Almost 80 years before the first consistent powered flights were happening, and the military didn't start using stuff again. It was the Wright craft, and that was in 1912. So, yeah, so you know, rocketry's moving pretty quick. So, we need to be patient with these guys. We need to be patient. We're going to take a break for um, station identification after. We're going to let you listen to some music. I've got to get a drink of water. Uh, this is uh, the next space show with Alan Joe. We're on Blog Talk Radio, provided to you live by Quad Media. Check us out. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
right, and we are back. This is uh, the next space show. It's Alan Joe, and we are talking about manned spaceflight news as we find it during the course of the week. We welcome you to the show, um, provided to you by a Blog Talk Radio and Wad Media. <coughs> we talked. Uh, we talked about our NASA news, uh, new space news, international space news. Uh, right now, we're going to move into our next section where we're talking about related tech. One of the things that uh, is really cool is that when it comes to um, base flight, all sorts of stuff comes into play with um, getting people, getting materials, getting ships moving around in space as opposed to here on Earth. Here we just pop in the car and off we go. Uh, it's not quite that easy out there in the back. The roads just haven't been built yet. Anyway, first on our list tonight in related tech, Skunk Works reveals a compact fusion reactor detail. Hidden away in the secret depths of Skunk Works. We all remember Skunk Works. And for those young folks, not when they were Skunk Works, these are the people who came up with the V2 stealth bomber, the, uh, before that, the SR-71. Now, they are a Lockheed Martin research team that are working quietly on a nuclear energy concept they believe has the potential to meet and eventually decrease the world's insatiable demand for power. Now, I, I get it. Power corrupts. I don't care how cheap it gets. People are just going to want more of it. However, that being said, they come up with something new, apparently. Dubbed the Compact Fusion Reactor, CFR for short, the device is conceptually safer, cleaner, and more powerful than the larger nuclear systems that rely on fission, the process of splitting atoms to release energy. Now, crucially, by being compact, Lockheed believes it's a scalable concept of also applications ranging from interplanetary spacecraft, commercial ships, to city power stations. Now, one of the things that I think, again, I think people are making a big mistake here. When the Soviet Union collapsed, from the sheer weight of its centralized control of everything. I had thought, I had hoped, we had learned that centralized control just doesn't work. We've got to, got to step back, centralizing everything, start decentralizing something. Our distribution is one of those that may be better off with being decentralized, and this type of tool would be one way of doing it. Um, Check, check out the article. It's a very interesting reading. They're coming up with some uh, interesting ideas, especially the size constraints. And i got to tell you, it, uh, if what they're saying is even half true, it offers some interesting uh, prospects for the coming future. Now, on that same note, <laughs> every single announcement I've seen out there on tech, we got scientists are bashing their breakthrough. And of course, in the spirit of giving equal time to both sides of the equation, um, they announced Wednesday from Lockheed Martin that they uh, had come up with this idea, and they're hoping that they can bring it about in 10 years. Now, however, most scientists and communicators that Business Insider talked to are skeptical of the plan. The nuclear, and here's a quote from Tom Jarbo. Um, told uh, inside our email, says the nuclear engineering 
clearly fails to be cost. Jarbo is a professor of aeronautics and astronautics, adjunct professor of physics, researcher with the University of Washington Virginia. Experiment. Well, okay, so he's a competitor. All right. We'll give him a little bit of sour grapes. But it may not be sour grapes. He knows more about this than I do. And I got to tell you, I have watched the fusion systems, most of which are based on the, the old Vokomax thing. And it's plasma and all sorts of kind of good stuff. And we're at least 40, 50 years into a large degree. It's got problems. But then, again, our cars are polluting our air, they're heating up our atmosphere, and all that kind of good stuff. So I guess we got to look at some of these things that generate tech and how they're doing. Now, here's another one. Hobby space. And it's kind of a an interesting source for this because they're they're talking a little bit about the same kind of thing. And in Science Tech, they've got an article where they're updating us on five fusion power projects. The LENR production. Uh, it's great to see progress being made on more conventional fusion approaches as well. There's been a flurry of reports recently on different approaches to fusion and they've got far simpler and lower cost than the ITER tokamak, which I was talking about a moment ago. And, you know, at best, either won't reach break even for decades. And this, this guy is echoing some of the things that I've read over the past several years and decades. So uh, nuclear fusion, and part of the reason I put this up here is a function of manned space flight is that one of the things that we need to collect and mine on the moon is helium-3. Helium-3 is important for fusion production. The problem is, all we've got are research systems. And if the uh, people are to be believed, we're looking at 10, 20 years before these fusion plants come online. And that's still a relatively small market. Not enough with sending all of the mining equipment to the moon, figuring out a way to repair it when it breaks because of the dust or anything else that's going on. And lastly, um, the cost of getting it back to Earth. Yes, the numbers they're saying is it'll be orders of magnitudes cheaper to get it from the moon because it's scarce on Earth. Okay. But I still question the value of something that is that expensive when robotics hasn't reached the point that we can depend on it to that degree and that kind of volume. Moving on, we got another thing coming up. Um, over in Hawaii, they had a cool thing starting up. We've got a training session beginning uh, to simulate Mars. We've got six people entering a habitat. They're going to spend eight months sleeping, experimenting, living as if they were actually millions of miles away on the red planet. And for the first time, they're going to cope with the help of an unusual piece of tech, Oculus Rift. Now, many of us have seen this in the, in the nerd news. Uh, NASA's been experimenting with virtual reality for years. Uh, in fact, we saw an article, SpaceX, in fact, Elon Musk demonstrated a piece of virtual reality, the, the kind of minority report computer interface kind of thing. So this stuff's starting to work its way into the mainstream. Now, Oculus hit the scene a couple of years ago. Virtual reality became attractive for many more purposes. You can now 
watch a movie, play video games, visit remote locations, all within a headset. And, you know, I'll share another one with you. You can now control your VR, get a first-person view, FPV, first-person view for RC-controlled cars, planes, and quadcopters. Uh, great set of VR gobbles into the developer kit, sir, he says. You betcha, I've seen that. But I ran across a, a thing. I was I was Googling somewhere and, and person view the RC kits. And basically, it's a set of goggles. You put a, a camera on your RC car, boat, helicopter, quadcopter, fly it around, and you're you're sitting there getting a view as if it's a, a, a as if you're sitting in the pilot seat of um, that quadcopter. So definitely interesting. Arnold, did I put that up there? Yeah. So definitely some interesting tech to keep an eye on, things that we're going to look forward to. Now, you know, what what they're talking about here is applying this to use as a way to um, cope with the isolation. One of the biggest issues that NASA scientists are afraid of is the isolation that, that astronauts will face on the way to Mars when you're looking at six to 18 month travel time, especially on the return trip. Okay. A lot of, lot of interesting stuff to be thinking about. In our another department, we talked about our opportunities to participate in new space these days. There's the uh, Mars Desert Research Station, the Mars Rover Competition is an annual thing held each year. We had a couple of more we're trying to source the IOT in with dual cameras. You can get a true stereoscopic view from the RC vehicle. That's just plain scary. You know, I can remember, what is, there's a new film out. There was a new film out. I think it was uh, Captain America Winter Soldier. And in the previews, I was watching, They somebody took an RC car, drove it underneath a full-size car. It exploded. The car goes all the other. If you were sitting driving this RC car, oh, man, that is just scary. Oh, here's another one. Okay, I got one for you. Halloween time. Here you go. Okay, Al, you ready for this? Or Joe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got the name. All right. I watched Janie from Mythbusters playing with a new toy. It was this RC spider. Now, this thing was, um, it was about as big around as a basketball is wide. And this thing was just, he had this thing up and down and and just sitting there having a ball with it. So, okay, here's a Halloween treat for you. Cersei, take those double camera VR goggles, put them on that spider, and then record the results as you creep in on people at dinner, barbecue, or have the spider come out while people are they're coming up to your house yeah. trick-or-treating. <laughs> Record it and have it playing on a monitor. Okay, guys. Halloween guys, what's up the ante here? <laughs> oh man. The fun stuff we come up here is just is, is we're just we're just having way too fun. Mars initiative. Mars one in the news again. Um doing some new stuff. People are talking about those twenty to forty thousand people um that have applied for that trip. Uh the one thing that bothers me about that um, <laughs> cover the RC spider in a black belt. Oh, absolutely. 
I believe it comes with, I guess it's a brushed uh, surface. So, but anyway, moving on, we've got the, the thing that I was talking about. Here's a question for y'all. If Mars One is wanting to move forward, why is it taking so long to choose people, uh, the couple, to make that trip? I, I really got to wonder about the time that it's taking to do that. Is it because they have so many? I know they whittled them down to 110,000, I think, the last I heard. Hopefully my numbers are right. Um, but also, um, I, I wonder how much of that is, is technology delays, how much of it is funding delays. Um, and things like that. Um, I ran across something today, actually it was yesterday, uh, that we're going to talk about in the commentary tonight. Um, but we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Um, we're, uh, for station identification, this is the News Space uh, weekend news program. We start usually about Sunday, 7, 7 o'clock, pretty close to 7 o'clock straight up. We try to get there. Um, I'm running my first time as engineer tonight, getting the feel for how to handle all of the little details, details, kind of things you got to handle when doing a, a show like this. Some of the things that we're looking forward to in our upcoming calendar, we talked a little bit at the start of the show. I'm going to kind of bring you up to speed. We just finished Comic and Media Expo. Blood Media and AZ Publishing were out there this weekend. Great show. Had a lot of fun. A lot, of, uh, a lot of our authors in AZ Pub showed up to sign autographs, sign books. Uh, oh, we got pictures on Facebook. Oh, yeah, there's some of our lady volunteers. We got some authors in there. I saw a couple artists. Now, that artist, I saw him across the way from you, Ruben Roses. Yeah, he's, uh, what's he doing? Artwork folks? Awesome. Cover art? Wow. And I know Tina Williams has got a new book out. So lots of new things happening. How exciting is speaking? For those of you into music, our Hey Girl show, 8 o'clock this Wednesday night. Um, they'll be uh, broadcasting live across the Internet worldwide from uh, the Ice House in Phoenix, Arizona, right behind the Tower Plaza Mall. Uh, Wild Western Festival in Glendale coming up this weekend, 24th, 25th, and 26th. Uh, Go here. We'll be out talking to old cowboys out there. Having a great time. Uh, also got a zombie walk number six coming up this weekend. So uh, be out there, folks. Watch for the zombies. Watch for the zombies. Uh, back to our show. Commentary for tonight. The article I ran into, um, I, I am a big fan of the habitats that we're going to have to work with when we get to Moon, when we get to Mars, when we get to Callisto, Ganymede, or Titan. These five targets are the ones that I have heard the biggest buzz about over the years. And that each one of these represents pretty much a rock for water, ice, and craters that also has the potential of some way that we could perhaps drop a habitat on and have some guys do some exploring and research on it. Many of you who have been listening to us for a while will know my position on that, that dropping a habitat on the surface of any other celestial body is about as, as productive 
as carrying a 50,000-pound motorhome, launching it and landing it on the moon softly and hoping that it's going to remain intact for longer than two weeks. So I don't have, I have no loss, uh, no love loss for any of those. However, one of the things, and it's at University of Arizona, I have a project called CEAC, C-E-A-C, I think it is. Um, and they actually are running the prototype of this CEAC down at the Antarctica, uh, uh, Antarctica Research Station. Now, what they're doing there is literally they've got this garden in, in a space. They've got lighting. It's all hydroponically driven, so they've got to bring in water. They've got to bring in nutrient solution. They've got to monitor this. They've got to adjust it. They've got to make sure the light, the air, the humidity, all this stuff has got to be absolutely perfect for them to actually do what they need to do. Coming out of uh, the Middle East, and actually a U.K. company is doing this, is we have uh, what's called a low-energy water desalination from seawater greenhouse. So here's the nutshell. Desalination plants, desalination is, it's very energy intensive. And in fact, because of that energy intensity, they're contributing to the climate change that they're attempting to remedy. This is a good example of what I've talked about before, where the engineering solution is creating more harm than good by trying to do nature better than nature could do itself. The article is about a UK company that explains a process that uses seawater to cool and humidify the air so they can do this in the Sahara Desert if need be, and sunlight to distill fresh water from the seawater. Now, this enables year-round cultivation of high-value crops that would otherwise be difficult or impossible to grow in hot, arid conditions like the Sahara Desert. So rather than an expensive, high-tech, complicated solution, they have turned back to natural, interdependent, cooperative processes to accomplish something big. Now, um, I put the link. Did I do that? Oh, that's the, oh, I put the first, okay. That's the link to the website, and it's, it's kind of sparse, I'll give you. So here is the link to the actual article, which actually is kind of interesting reading. They, 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 they present it a little bit easier to follow. Now, first it says, like several forms of recycling, you end up doing more damage than good in the process of all except for a very few materials. I would agree with that. And in most cases, recycling is necessary because we had technology create the problem in the first place. Rubber has to be recycled. Plastic has to be recycled. When we send our trash out, uh, whether it's food trash or whether it's um, sewage or whatever, is it going through um, cycling? No. It's going to a water treatment plant. The most water treatment plants today, and this, these numbers are actually reducing, most water treatment plants today run the water that they get from our sewage pipes through multiple ponds that they treat chemically. They are expensive. They are 
very inefficient, labor-intensive. Now, there are some articles, and I strongly encourage you to uh, check out aquaponics. Google it. Uh, also look for um, constructed wetlands. There's something to Google, folks. Um, everybody's getting on the constructed wetlands uh, deal. This, this has been going on almost 20 years, where they take an area of land, uh, and in fact, here in, in the valley, we actually have a constructed wetland out in the West Valley around, uh, let's see, 90th Avenue, not as far as 100th, uh, or 91st Avenue and the Salt River bed. There is the Rio Salado uh, project out there. Now, it's, it's running shy on volunteers these days, so it's not in its full bloom like it was in its heyday, but what they've done is they set up a situation where water is pumped, uh, basically effluent sewage is pumped into these ponds where they allow um, uh, wetland plants to thrive and grow and process and live off the nutrients of these things. Um, they, they ran into a problem. <laughs> like we should have this problem. These wetlands are so successful at what they do, so freaking successful that they're harder to maintain than a golf course. And they become so overgrown so fast that they're still having difficulty getting the proportions correct. Now, the reason I point out this article on this seawater greenhouse is that from what I can see so far, it looks like these folks are trying to connect aquaponics with seawater desalination. Now, there's details we can't see yet that would help to uh, give us a better picture of where the connection would be made. But as far as I can tell, one of the big things that they're going to run into is because they're piping that seawater down through those cardboard uh, air, uh, air heat exchangers to cool the air that's inside the greenhouse, those things are going to get filled with salt really, really, really fast. And I think unless they can come up with a way to extract that salt, they're going to have some real problems. Um, granted, that salt can be uh, become a byproduct that they can then sell as well. So the beauty of this thing, what really got my attention, is that what you're looking at here isn't just something that's a, a desalination plant. This is a farm. If you add the fish in there, uh, if you have freshwater fish to feed the plants, the nutrients, now you've got literally nearly a complete biome here, almost a biosphere three. I don't know that it needs to be as big as they're showing. That maybe smaller units that might be easier to manage might be more practical. But then again, size helps with scaling things to make them more profitable. So it'll be interesting to see how this works out. Kudos to these folks for bringing in natural systems and using natural systems rather than these huge turbines and generators and all of the power-hungry equipment that to mention that 
based on the little meager offerings we're receiving between the article and the website, these folks at least are trying to be a little bit pragmatic. Kudos to them for that. One of the things that I believe that we are going to need to understand extremely well is how to scale up the aquaponic systems from most of the backyard units the people are building now that feed four or five people to something like what this company is offering, potentially be able to provide con continuous, consistent food for one or more restaurants or to grocery stores or things like this. The challenge that we face is, and this is, this is the kicker, if we start throwing desalin aquaponic-based desalination plants out all over the Mediterranean, North African coast, and you take a lot of that fresh water that they're going to end up with, population doesn't use, which they'll eventually use it all, uh, and you start pumping that around, you're, you're going to green up your, your environment a little bit, which would be a good thing because you green the environment with more plants and things like this, and you can support them, um, you might be able to affect climate change. Okay, that, that's a cool kind of thing. Uh, however, this is still a technological solution to a problem that people have been living in this region for thousands of years. Archaeology suggests that our species grew up in this breadbasket of the world, so to speak, this uh, womb of the human species. Um, I'm not so sure, Cersei points out, it would claim back part of what the deserts have claimed, but is that a good thing? One of the things that you look at history, you study the history, especially in the way that we have used technology to challenge nature. That's, that's the one thing that I, that I really have a big bugaboo is, is that we use our technology to challenge nature, not to work with it. And our deserts are expanding every year, absolutely. But I wonder if that isn't part of the natural process that the Earth is going through anyway. Climate change is climate change. Yeah, it's pretty clear that with our huge impact with automobiles, the air conditioners that we uh, throw hot air out from our homes into the, into the thing, all of the heat exchanges that we're running, these things could indeed be accelerating what is a natural process. And indeed, many scientists are beginning to lean towards that direction. While I think what this solution offers is indeed a way to perhaps reclaim some of the desert or at least a small portion. One of the things that we have seen time and again is that nature reclaims what man tries to take, unless we find a way to live with nature. Now, that doesn't mean I'm thinking we should abandon technology. In fact, quite the opposite. I just think it's important that we start taking our tech 
and learning to work with nature instead of genetically modifying crops, creatures, and everything and coming up with all sorts of side effects that we couldn't anticipate. Desalination plants based on aquaponic tech, I think it's a great idea. I think it's a step in the right direction of using natural processes to help heal our planet. Problem is, we can't do enough fast enough because of the damage that we're doing in other areas. And that's going to continue until we can, as a species, come together. And quite honestly, <laughs> that ain't going to happen. I mean, just look at the International Space Station, which started out being Space Station Freedom, as I said earlier in the in the newscast, when we talked about the Chinese space station coming into play, that politics, interestingly enough, you ever thought about politics as engineered social progress? I mean, what's the lawyer do but engineer his case? He calculates, he formalizes, and, and theorizes, and then observes. He goes through this whole scientific um, process, those four steps. This is three. three. Okay. Observation, conclusion. Anyway. We do these things every day, and our tech and our engineering are getting in our way. We're starting to stumble over. And this is the challenge that I think we face now. As we get to the point where we begin to move people into space, whether it be Earth orbit, whether it be to the moon, Mars, and other destinations, or whether it be all the way out and into um, manufactured space habitats in the open space, we're going to struggle finding a balance between tech and natural processes. And if we can't at least bring the pendulum swing in a little tighter, we're going to continue to suffer from these uh, swings, be they climate swings, be they population swings, or be they food swings. Climate change affects them all. These are the challenges we face in the coming years as we try to see our technology move us off of this planet. Comment from Thursday. Politics is like throwing 100 magnets into a room. Some get crushed, right? but eventually they clump into a form that is hard to change. Damn human condition. Absolutely. It's a good analogy. I like that. Um, and sadly, our technology is doing just that. We've thrown a bunch of stuff against the wall waiting for something to stick and then for stuff to clump together. And the problem is then we end up with something like Ebola where it's trying to stick in Dallas. If it sticks, we're in trouble. They need to hit this stuff like a war. And, you know, I, I'm not going to tell CDC what they need to do. They know better than I the steps of how to prevent disease spread. And I know Dallas and the other cities that are looking at this are taking steps, and that's good. But our own technology is getting in our way. We had most of these diseases under control. And we forgot something. We forgot that Nate, the phrase, and, you know, I think if I've heard a phrase quoted from any movie from Jurassic Park, nature will find a way. We are finding measles making a comeback. Headlights fighting the drug. 
we got termites, we got ants, we got the entire natural world is challenging our technology. We cannot change our technology fast enough to keep up with nature. And here's the rub. Geologists, uh, archaeologists are telling us that nature evolves very, very slowly. And here we are trying to run at breakneck speed but nature is doing what we are not. Nature is doing the observe and adjust. Clearly, our engineers are not. Our social engineers are not. And you're right. People not using vaccines, many of the, of the outbreaks of older diseases. But there's something else um, a little closer to home that we need to remember. Those diseases, created a species capable of, uh, created a species in us humans that was able to handle nearly every disease that came, that nature threw at us. There was a balance struck. And yeah, polio was almost completely wiped out. Almost. There was a, an article some years ago that I remember seeing that talked about one of the reasons that they keep these vaccines under guard is there's an old saying in war and in espionage, keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. We don't want to lose an understanding of polio, the measles, the mumps. We don't want to lose our understanding of these things. We need to understand them. We need to... Um, be wary, but not obliterate them. Because here's the thing, and our uh, Chicago gave us this lesson, and New York, back in the 20s and the 30s, and the Middle East is giving us this lesson nowadays. When you destroy one enemy, you create a power vacuum. And whether that power vacuum is sociological, technological, or natural, the enemy that comes in to replace the one you have erased will, in all truth, be worse than the guy you just beat. If our immune system is incapable of dealing with the ones we've got in jail, Ebola, measles, mumps, then our immune system ain't going to be able to handle the bug that's coming around the corner. And this is the reasoning that I use, <laughs> this is why I say, um, okay, what do we got here? It's a 10-year period of people believing the vaccines caused autism was so harmful, but this show is about space. I'll shut up about this. Well, yeah, but I'm going to bring it back around because this is the point we need to remember. When we look at, again, I'm going to go back to history again. You guys are going to get tired of me talking about history because history has a boatload of lessons for us to remember. When the pilgrims started the migration to the New World and Americans started migrating from the early colonies out west and then Europe started migrating down to Australia and then we had people moving out to the islands of the Pacific and Africa started spreading its wings into its unexplored region. 
we discovered many new things, but we also kept running up against peoples, groups of people who had lived for hundreds or thousands of years extremely isolated, but they had lived quite quite happily. What did they need with technology? What did they need with, you know, I mean, for crying out, there was a movie made about that one. What was that? Mosquito code. That's right. Mosquito code. Now, what does this tell us today with regard to bugs and genetically modified crops and settling space? Well, it tells us a lot. The numbers from those those migrations, specifically pilgrims coming to America and those after, Americans traveling west to settle the plains and then also going to Australia, Everything I have read to date over the last three or four years of research tells me that 75% of the people that make that migration start die. 75%. And that's admittedly a huge number of people. But here's the thing. And now I'm going to get morbid. Put your shield on. Get ready for this. Our species is overgrowing our planet. And in doing so, we have to adapt. Good point. You're right with me, sir. We do that by culling the herd. And that's what migrations do for us. We get two, we, we kill two birds with one stone. Sadly, that, 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 that pun was not intended. Sorry about that. <laughs> We send people on a migration. They run out in mass, and in the process, we open a new frontier. But here's the rub. When the pilgrims opened the frontier for the new world, we made a nation. When Europe moved into Australia, they built a nation. When we go into space, we're going to open a frontier that is open-ended. There are no boundaries. And one of the things that we face greater than all others is that space is, is the single most deadly frontier. Whether you go to the moon, Mars, uh, which has got somewhat of an atmosphere. You go out to Ganymede, Callisto, Titan, there's, there's almost no atmosphere out there. When we talk about going to space, we have to look at the lessons that history teaches us. First of all, people are going to die. There are going to be a lot of people dying. This bit about sending people to the moon and bringing them back safely, not going to happen. Uh, we've already seen people going to orbit. We've lost people from Apollo 1. We've lost people from Challenger. We lost people in uh, Columbia. And that's just going to orbit. And the safety record of the space shuttle is huge. It's great. Um, but these things are going to be challenging. And if we're going to make progress, we need a common a common approach. Cersei mentions Jupiter's and Saturn's gravity is going to be a bitch. Well, yes and no. Getting out of those gravity wells, yeah. But as I understand it, um, let's see. There's a difference between Callisto and Ganymede. Ganymede is inside, I think it is, uh, the 
the radiation sphere. So the radiation is the big thing there. But getting from Ganymede to Callisto is going to be a bitch. Getting from Callisto to the outer planets might be okay doable. Okay, that's a good point. The orbit of the moon. And and here's something to think about. Now, most of those are moons, and so they don't have a full Earth gravity or anything even close. Mars comes in at, what, one-third, I think it was, and the moon is one-sixth. So I'm willing to bet that our gravity that we're going to face living on Callisto and living on Ganymede, or Titan for that matter, are going to be in the one to one eighth range because they are their satellites of of the uh, large gas planet. Now, granted, gravity is going to play havoc uh, out in the atmospheric areas of those moons. It's also going to play havoc out in the uh, byways and the traffic areas as we try to navigate between those areas. You know, I remember <laughs> I was. As part of my research, one of the things that I've been a strong advocate of and strong supporter of is that when we look at moving between these celestial objects, you know, here's the thing. Engineers are talking about going to Mars. Okay. Direct to Mars? Laughable. Come on, give me a break. You're going to sit on a rocket on the planet Earth. Um, and you're going to launch that rocket with its passengers and crew straight to Mars. Okay, yeah. You're going to have one launch every two years, and even then it's going to be a little dicey. All right? That's going to be challenging. We can't move enough people doing that. I don't care what you do. These colony ships, not going to work. So we have to look at the ways that airlines do it today. The hub and spoke, which means Earth is a hub, the moon is a hub, Mars gets to be a hub, Callisto's a hub, Titan will be a hub, and get this, I bet we have a star drive. So Titan becomes our star drive hub, the one that goes outward. At least that's my dream. <laughs> We've got to look at our approach to moving into space. <laughs> All the astronauts have to go through a Delta hub. I take it they must be a uh, particularly frustrating hub. Um, or is that a reference to the government ISF? Oh, Atlantis. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, at least they don't have to go through the Dallas hub, which is really mired down these days. Anyway. Back to what we started the commentary on. This low energy water desalination from seawater greenhouse, blending natural systems um, with engineering solutions that work together, instead of engineers trying to re-engineer natural processes better. This is a mistake. This is what's got us on this ever-increasing money pit that is technology for technology's sake. When we look at the history and we realize that opening a frontier is going to kill a boatload of people, and 
But in the process, we're going to open this frontier to millions and billions, and as Carl Sagan said, billions and billions of more. We're going to see a renaissance like we've never seen before. And heaven knows what we're going to find as each of these various different solar system hubs begins to take shape and develop its own unique um, frontier lifestyle. Um, we've got to look at scaling back from hard tech. And we'll be talking more about this on the next space here on Blog Talk Radio. You're still typing, Cersei. You going to finish? <laughs> oh, here we go. There is no shortage of people willing to risk death to explore the new frontier, just like every other exploration. And you know, you're absolutely right. When they made the announcement, the scientists originally suggesting a one-way trip to Mars, and nearly, what was it, 4,000 emails were hit. And then, less than a year or two later, thousand people. 400,000, I stand corrected, applied for the Mars One program. And that's that, that's got to say that people are ready to go. And yet we have every major space program now is not jumping at a multi-passenger module to orbit. We're going to take a few minutes here, and I'm going to diverge for some vision-making. SpaceX has talked about delivering high, what are, what are they called? Uh, high, uh, lots of launches to get people to space. And I truly think that they have the manufacturing set up to do it. They're building reusable boosters, which means they can launch uh, another booster in a matter of days, weeks. Now, if you take a SpaceX launch pad, right now we have, I think at last count, let's see, they've got Texas, the Cape, Edwards. Uh, they're, built, they're putting a, uh, an office up in Seattle, which means they could be putting a launch place up in the, the northwest. Uh, you have, uh, we have the uh, Europeans are launching from the Mediterranean. They're launching from uh, an island off of Africa. The Russians have three or four launch facilities, or at least is it two. I think they're building a new one, so it makes it three. So we're, we're looking at about 10 major launch facilities capable of sending people into space. With what SpaceX offers and what, um, ULA is beginning to consider, at least according to the article, experimented with a while back. If we could send 30 or 40 people on one rocket, and then if we had a launch pad in every capital city of the Union, one in every state, 50 launch points, that's what it's going to take for us to launch 
the next migration and to settle the frontier. Now, just a little numbers. Uh, Elon Musk is talking about getting a million people on Mars to make it sustainable. Well, I, I think it won't take quite a million people to make it sustainable, but I think he's on the right track. But here's the rough. Even with 50 launch pads, each ship launching 30 people at a time, do you realize that's only 1,500 people a day that we can launch? To get millions of people is going to take a long time. Yeah, in fact, I believe private industry is the only one that can pull it off. But it's not enough. Well, let's. I, I'm going to give you a, a couple of things to think about here. Robert Bigelow, Bigelow Aerospace, he's a hotel guy. Most of you space nerds know about him. But what a lot of people don't know, and we've talked about it before, he has placed two, mind you, two private prototype space habitats, inflatable units up in orbit back in 2006 and 2007. Now, in addition to that, SpaceX has been building, mind you, they keep building rocket ships. I mean, I, I saw a thing where they've got eight Dragon modules on the factory floor right now. As far as I know, only an airline company, or, or I'm sorry, an airplane company keeps that many vehicles on the factory floor at one time. Uh, SpaceX has the right idea. But if they're going to send capsules or vehicles with 30 people in 50 states factoring on a scale we haven't seen since World War II, that kind of a frontier has never existed yet. Only during World War II did, did that kind of manufacturing exist. And it took a hell of a toll. This is what we're up against. It's not just the numbers. It's not just the tech. It's not just the money. It's the actual pragmatic effort that it's going to take. Now, I started out by saying we've got Bigelow and we got SpaceX. Okay. we got some more things coming up the pipe. Um, and Cersei mentions that uh, a million people is far more than I think it would take. Yeah, I would agree. It would be like trying to roll out B-17s back in the 40s. Exactly. They were, you know, I, I remember they were chunking those out faster. Well, they had to be chunking them out. They were chunking those out so fast for the uh, access powers to shoot them down and, and not have three or four in the wings. Um, when you look at the peoples around the world, you give them something to work for, like victory in World War II, and you can build a juggernaut that will not stop, and people will be happy, and people will be prosperous. And that's what we have to build. And SpaceX is on the cusp of doing that. But there is one big hurdle that, you know, I mean, they, they've got, you got Bigelow ready with the Habitat Space Station unit. You've got um, Excalibur Almaz. Many of you may not have even remembered these folks. These, these folks uh, on the Isle of Man 
are building a lunar cycler. You ought to look that one up. Check out lunar cycler somewhere. Um, they're building one, at least they're trying to. They've got the equipment together. They're putting it together. Uh, haven't seen much of the news about them lately. And Buzz Aldrin did all the math for a Mars cycler. And I know a guy who's done some great, um, great artwork to demonstrate this whole idea of a, a hub transportation network in the solar system. And with a way to spend, send 30 to 50 people up into orbit at a time, you couple that with the inflatable habitats, hotels, research stations up in orbit that Bigelow can provide, you couple that with an operating lunar cycler that's making that run between the moon and Earth on a regular basis, um, you can have shuttles going up and down from that as it transits back and forth. You have cargo going back and forth. We also know the cargo can be coming down into the gravity well of not only these cyclers, but the three Mars cyclers to get us out to Mars, running three times more often than two years. I mean, we could have people could be going back and forth. We've got ways, and here's something I, I, I got to laugh. Um, as part of my research, call out on our website not too long ago. I said, hey, if I wanted to go from Mars orbit to Jupiter's Callisto, what would it take? How long? How much fuel? Anybody got any ideas? You know, I laughed at me. He says, no, you don't want to do that. You're going to go straight from Earth to Callisto. And I just shook my head. It's bad enough. It's, it's six to nine months to go from Earth launch to Mars. What would it take to go all the way to Callisto? So it sounds like <clears throat> I'm getting troubles on, on the line. Because we're breaking up real bad on our audio. So I'm going to take this opportunity. We're going to kind of close up for the night. Thank you all for joining us. Thursday, you kept me going tonight. <laughs> A lot of good comments. Uh, we have some uh, very interesting news happening this week. A lot of stuff happening in the community. Hopefully, we'll see the production keep going. And again, just a reminder for those of you here in the Valley, uh, join us at the excuse me. Join us at the conferences coming up this weekend. Well, West Fest Glendale, the Zombie Walk, uh, Kamikaze in L.A., Tuscon down in Tucson, and Fearcon out in West Phoenix. And uh, with that, again, a uh, Fearcon. Thank you. Out in West Phoenix this coming week. Uh, join us. We'll be out there. Come say hi. Uh, and with that, I invite you, okay, guys, do the research. Check it out. Start looking at blending technologies instead of using them to isolate, as we've done in the past. Let's look at aquaponics. Let's look at um, interdependent systems. Bring them into play. They're a lot cheaper to run than, hydro than hydroponics. Do the numbers. Do the math. This is Alan Joe signing off this week for the next space. Blog Talk Radio, be bad, no, be safe, be bad, and be good at it.
and we'll see you next week, folks. And you have a good week.